One of my favorite singer-songwriters has a line in one of his songs that has struck me since the first time I heard it about six years ago. He asked this question, are you living the life you chose? Are you living the life that chose you? How might you answer that question? We all intentionally make decisions that steer us through our particular course of life, whether that's for good or for ill. And maybe you've chosen who your spouse would be or where you live or what line of work you would go into or or who your friends are. All those decisions that you make, of course, have an impact on the direction of the life that you live. However, there are other kinds of events in our lives that we do not or would not choose if we could that also have very serious effects on the direction of the trajectory of our lives. Whether that's a disease or an injury or the loss of someone dear to you or a financial ruin, violent acts committed against you. And so with that in mind, those two categories, I'll pose the question again, are you living the life you chose or are you living the life that chose you? Uh, In our modern day, when we hear that sort of a question, it lands with an implicit judgment sort of wrapped up in it. We are trained to think in our modern day and age that we are the captains of our own ships. So if we're not living the life that we chose, something's wrong. That we must be doing our lives wrong because we need to impose our wills, we need to assert our wills over reality, We need to live the life that we want to choose. But that's not how reality works. The only legitimate response to that question, I believe, is both. Life rarely gives us such a clear either or vision of life, where it's the life that you choose or the life that chooses you. It's just just not that simple. We live the lives we choose, of course, yet much of the direction of our lives is obviously outside of our control. On your way in, you received a worship guide, and inside of that worship guide, there was an insert, and that insert has a bit of information about the book of Ruth, meant to be just a helpful background information that I don't want to have to mention in the sermon, uh, or to take time away from what we're doing here this morning. You'll be able to use this for the next four weeks. Uh, It just has background information. I hope that you find that helpful as we're tracing out the outline and the characters and the historical background there. We're going to be going through the book of Ruth for the next four Sundays, one chapter at a time. Uh, and the, the book of Ruth is a, a really well artistically crafted story. It is a story that illustrates the mysterious providence of God that plays out through human decisions and choices. Even in this one first chapter here that we just had read for us, Elimelech and Naomi choose to leave Bethlehem. They choose to go to Moab. Uh, Their sons choose to marry foreign gods, uh, the daughters of foreign gods, more specifically. Ruth chooses, of course, to cling to Naomi, her mother-in-law. She chooses to return to Bethlehem with her. And in the book that we just walked through before this, that that prophet Malachi, we saw that, that there was direct speech from God himself. And so there wasn't a whole great degree of confusion or mystery in what was happening there. God was clearly explaining what was happening But that's not the way that Ruth works. This narrative, this story, has no direct speech from God. God is, of course, in the background of every portion, every verse of this narrative, but we can't trace out exactly what's happening or why 
We don't understand fully his actions, his intentions, with the same degree of clarity that we can when he explicitly gives us his own interpretation of our life's events. The book of Ruth, then, is actually much more like our own lives. In chapter one, Naomi begins with grief. She begins with emptiness. By chapter four, she ends with joy and she ends with fullness. That's the the narrative arc that we'll see over the next four weeks. But we, uh, being outside of the story, have the benefit of reading this thing in retrospect. We get to know the end of her story even as we're starting the beginning of it. And that's not the case for ourselves. That is not how our lives work. So as we are reading this, one act at a time, we need to walk through it slowly, uh, entering into each verse and each scene within the acts, the narrative, carefully and slowly, not jumping to the end too quickly, but entering into the story to help us understand and trust both in the sovereignty and the goodness of God. So we're gonna walk through this book one act at a time, one chapter at a time with different scenes. So in chapter one, this first act, we're gonna split it up into three sections. First, an, an overture, an intro, a time of darkness, sorrow, and famine that we read in verses one through five. And then scene one begins our narrative with Ruth clinging to Naomi and taking refuge in the Lord, verses six through 18. And then scene two, and Naomi returning empty, just in time for harvest, verses 19 through 22. In keeping with the artistic narrative of the book of Ruth, I've got a big idea that is a, a little bit unique. It's actually just a line from a hymn. In 1774, William Cooper wrote a hymn called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And so we're just gonna use verse four of his hymn for our big idea. It's this. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Let's pray. Father, we need your help this morning. We are... Uh, We are distracted, we are tossed to and fro by the situations in our own lives. And even as we we think about the narrative of Naomi, no doubt almost everyone in here will be thinking about their own story, their own narrative and interpreting it. And so we ask that you would help us interpret your word accurately so that we might interpret our own lives accurately and to give you the glory that you're due and to help us to sort out our emotions, to understand that we, that we ought to turn to you in trust and in love and in confidence. Would you help us this morning by your spirit? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First, the overture, the first five verses, a time of darkness and sorrow and famine. I'm just gonna read verses one through five again back into our hearing for us. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife, his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. 
These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So this book opens with these five verses that act like an overture. Uh, It's a prologue. It's giving a brief summary of everything that we need to know before the narrative, the story, officially starts. So if this was Star Wars, this would be the beginning where there's that text that sort of crawls up on the screen a long time ago in a land far, far, a galaxy far, far away, right? We have something similar here in these first five verses. In the days when the judges ruled... When there was a famine. Now, of course, this is an expertly crafted story, but just to be clear, this involves real history. Uh, These are real people involved here. It's not a fairy tale. This involves the real experience of real people in real times and real places. And the real historical setting for this narrative is the period in Israel's history between the conquest of Canaan, that promised land, and the establishment of the monarchy. So Israel has entered into the land, but they don't have a kingdom set up yet. So it's that time between Joshua, the one who brought them into the land, who came after Moses, right? He led them into the land, and it's between that period and when Saul would be their first king. And we read about this long period of time in Israel's history, the days of the judges, in the book of Judges that book that was just before Ruth in our Bible. So that's the backdrop of the book of Ruth. It was about a 350-year period of time, depending on how we want to calculate it. And within this period of uh, Judges, there was a cycle, a recurring cycle. If you read the book of Judges, you'll see this pattern playing out over and over again. The people would rebel against God. They would turn to foreign gods and worship them in idolatry. They would rebel against God's law. And as a consequence, Foreign nations would come in, they would conquer Israel, and they would oppress the Israelites. Then they would cry out to God to be delivered from these oppressors, and so God would raise up someone he called a, a judge. This judge would be a deliverer, and that judge would be given the task of delivering God's people from the oppressors. Okay, so this is a book of judges. This is a whole bunch of judges that sort of cycle through And after that deliverance happened, there would be a season of stability, a season of rest in the land. They would turn, they would seek God. But inevitably, as time passed, they would fall back into idolatry, back into sin, and that cycle, sadly, would start over again. Well, Ruth, apparently, is taking place during a period of rebellion because there's famine in the land. It reminds us of what we read uh, just a few weeks ago in the book of Malachi. God called Israel to return to him and he would return to them. And what was the promise? That he would open up the floodgates of heaven, he would bring down rain and he would end the famine. Right? So there's a clear interpretation here that Ruth is taking, time, uh, taking place in a time of rebellion in this cycle of the judges. That famine was the result of Israel's disobedience. And so the time of Judges is, is mostly just a dark time. There are glimpses of hope in here every once in a while, but that cycle just keeps continuing. Uh, in fact, the most repeated phrase in the book of Judges is this, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's one of the most repeated phrases across the whole book. And things just seem to get worse and worse. Uh, every time that cycle repeated itself, it's almost like it just got darker and darker. This is how the book of Judges ends. 
Judges 21, verse 25, it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This Judges chapter 21, verse 25, that's how the narrative ends. And that sets us up then for the first bit of irony in the book of Ruth, because the very first character in Ruth to be named is called Elimelech, which means, literally translated, my God is king. And yet, here is Elimelech, apparently doing what is right in his own eyes, because he leaves the promised land. The famine had hit Judah, Bethlehem, where he was living with his wife and two sons, and so he makes the decision to leave the promised land that God had given to Israel and said, this is your land that I'm giving to you and for your generations. And they went to Moab. They sojourned in Moab. Now, Moab was one of the kingdoms who actually oppressed Israel during that time of the judges. Uh, One of their kings actually ruled over Israel for a period of time. Moab was not friendly with Israel. The the Moabites worshiped a a false god named Chemosh, sometimes through child sacrifice even. But not only did Elimelech sojourn there, our text actually says that he stayed there. They remained there. This was not a temporary thing. He stayed there actually for quite some time. Another bit of irony, of course, is that the city that they formerly lived in was called Bethlehem, which literally translates as house of bread. Well, there was no bread in the house of bread. There was no bread in Bethlehem. And so Elimelech chooses to leave. He leaves with his wife, Naomi. And Naomi means pleasant or sweet. Uh, That is what her name means if we translated it. And she leaves, they leave with their two sons, Malon and Kilion. And at some point, Elimelech died. We're given no details about the circumstances. It comes as a bit of a shock. Just a brief statement that at some point it happened. And then it moves on quickly. It says the sons took wives from Moab. So these sons now have married daughters of these foreign gods, worshipers of Kamosh. Malon and Kilion married Ruth and Orpah as they're named in our text, and they lived there in Moab for about 10 years. And then we get another brief statement informing us that Naomi's sons both died, and neither marriage had provided any children. So now, Naomi, this Israelite from Bethlehem, was left in a foreign land without the family that she brought with her. She had two daughters-in-law, but she wasn't even really truly related to them directly anymore. So these verses help us understand the backdrop. Here's the conflict as soon as this narrative begins. We have this family from Bethlehem, from the tribe of Judah, Elimelech. The husband is from the tribe of Judah, and they have these two sons, but a famine happens, and these, these uh, Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah leave the promised land. They go out from where they, the land that God had given to them to Moab, which is outside of the promised land, and all three of the men in her family died within 10 years. Neither of her sons had any children of their own. Naomi is left without anyone to, to personally provide for her, to protect her. She's apparently pretty advanced in age. Uh, we read later that she is beyond childbearing age. And so these first five verses set up the gloomy backdrop of this story. Naomi left because of a famine of food, but since she left the land, 
She's experienced a famine of family. So if we read carefully, careful readers of the text, we are not given any clear stated reasons for the gloomy situation that Naomi finds herself in. We naturally have questions. We read something like this and we're like, well, why is this happening? Was it judgment upon Elimelech and the family because they decided to leave God's promised land? Was it because their, their sons married these daughters of the foreign gods? Is that why this happened? Or were Naomi's bitter circumstances unrelated to any discernible cause? Well, it seems that the narrator leaves this intentionally unanswered. Much like our own lives, we don't have access to the whole story. So was Naomi living the life she chose or was she living the life that chose her? We're not really given the option of a clear either or to that question. So we should be careful in blaming Naomi or her family for the condition that they found themselves in. So these verses introduce the problem. Naomi is left, she is bereaved, she's in a foreign land without food or protection or family. But as soon as verse six, we, we begin to see some glimmers of light peering into the darkness. Scene one, Ruth clings to Naomi and takes refuge in the Lord. This will be verses six through 18, and I'll read that back into our hearing again. Verse six, I'll read just verse six first. And then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. So it appears that that cycle of judgment and uh, rebellion and blessing has ended how it's come full circle. God has visited his people. One of the very few direct statements we get about the activity of God in this book says Yahweh visited his people and he gave to them food. Literally, the word translated there is bread. So Yahweh has visited Bethlehem and he has given them bread. He has once again provided bread for the house of bread in Bethlehem. We continue, verse seven through nine. And so she sets out from the place that she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. So they're on their way back to Bethlehem, and Naomi begins to encourage Orpah and Ruth, her daughters-in-law, to return back to their own land. So they're in between Moab and Bethlehem, and Naomi's like, you guys should just turn back. You're still young enough to be remarried, you probably would just have better opportunities in Moab. So Naomi tries to bless them. We can see it there in verse eight. May the Lord deal kindly with you, she says. Literally, may he show his hesed, his steadfast love to you. Hesed is gonna be an important word and phrase and concept throughout this book. And so Orpah and Ruth both have been kind towards Naomi. She appreciates that. But it seems that it would be their best option, difficult though it is, to part ways. Love you guys, it's been great, but you should go back home. Verses 10 through 14, they said to her, no, we'll return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters, why would you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. 
If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceeding, exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So they, they don't want to leave Naomi. They've lifted up their voices in lament. And now they begin to re- respectfully disagree with Naomi. So Naomi does her best to convince them, no, I, this is the best option. I know this is difficult, but this is gonna be best. And so she says, don't stay with me. I'm not gonna be able to give you the help that you guys really need. Even if I got married again, I wouldn't be able to have sons. And even if I could have sons, they would take, up for, they would take forever to grow up, to be old enough to be your husbands. You're not gonna have anything that's, that's going to be beneficial from me. So she's, it seems, trying to think of her daughter-in-laws in that sort of selfless sense. You can't wait that long to get married again. Don't stick with me, go back. It would multiply Naomi's grief, it says, to know that these two young women would be tangled up into her own gloomy situation. And so they cry over the bitterness of the situation. And Orpah gets the message. Sounds good. She turns back to go to Moab. Ruth, however, was not buying it. Ruth clung to Naomi, it says, despite the fact that Naomi had nothing to offer her. In fact, only darkness and mystery and pain was ahead. And so Naomi tries to convince her again. Verses 15 through 18. She said, see, your sister-in-law, she's gone back to her people, to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death departs me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Now, Orpah, at this point, had set back to go back to Moab, back to her people, back to that that false god, Kamosh. Naomi then suggested that Ruth just do the same thing. This will be easier for everybody involved, but Ruth is not having it. She says, "Stop stop asking me to leave you. This is getting a little bit awkward. We're in this thing together. Verse 16 is the central point of this chapter. Verse 16, that phrase... Your people should be my people, and your God, my God, should stick out to us. If we have familiarity with the Old Testament, that's a phrase that recurs a lot. Initially, when God enters into a covenant with his people Israel, that is the phrase that he gives that sort of summarizes this covenantal relationship between them. You will be my people, and I will be your God. That's a covenantal statement. And over and over again, God would keep that phrase out in front of his people. Return to me. He would invite them, you stubborn, stiff-necked people, return to me with your whole hearts, and you shall be my people, and I shall be your God. And this is the language that Ruth is using, and she even amplifies it in verse 17. She's amplifying that language of covenant because it comes with a curse, even, She invokes a curse on herself if she breaks the covenant. She says, says essentially, may Yahweh take my life if I ever leave you. 
So, it's not clear to us when this happened, but it is clear to us that it happened. Ruth has converted to faith in the true and living God. When this passage is read, sometimes during weddings, we just focus on the sweet, kind dedication that we find between Naomi and Ruth and between Ruth and Naomi. And that's totally here, obviously, in the text. Don't get me wrong. But the more shocking reality here that sometimes we read right over is that this woman who was born into a culture that worshiped Kamosh had come to faith in the true and living God. So not only is Ruth clinging to Naomi, showing her steadfast, faithful, loyal love, she is clinging to Yahweh. She is taking refuge in the Lord. And it's striking to me to notice actually how this plays out in the narrative. Notice Naomi tells her in verse 13, she says that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi's painting a very bleak picture, a dark picture of a future with Naomi in Israel. This is not the most enticing evangelistic message. And yet, Ruth says, hey, stop pushing me back. Listen to me. I've been converted. She is devoted to the God of Israel. And this becomes even more clear to us later on in the narrative in chapter 2, verse 12, where it says that Ruth has come to take refuge under the wings of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so Naomi's starting to get the picture. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined, she stopped trying to talk her out of it. And that's all it says, actually. <laughs> that's the end of the conversation. She just stops the conversation. We might have expected that Naomi would respond, wow, what an amazing expression of faithfulness. May the Lord bless you for your steadfast love and kindness toward me. May your words be enshrined in hobby lobbies around the world and future generations. <laughs> but she doesn't. And we don't want to read too much into Naomi's silence, but it doesn't seem that she's all that excited about Ruth clinging to her. At this point, it seems that Ruth is more of a burden to Naomi than a blessing for her to hold on to. And that becomes a little bit more clear as we continue reading. Notice the final four verses of this first chapter where the scene is shifting back to Bethlehem. This would be scene two. And Naomi returns empty just in time for harvest. Verses 19 through 21. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now, we need to remember that this story began with Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons moving from Bethlehem to Moab. They've moved out of Israel, seeking greener pastures, as it were, outside of the promised land. And they've been gone, they were gone for about 10 years, but the famine in the land has ended, and so Naomi is returning. And those who didn't leave Bethlehem, who were remaining in the promised land, well, they must have recognized Naomi when she came back. The whole town was buzzing about her return, is what the text says. 
Naomi had left with a husband and two sons, and yet now she's returning without any of them, uh, only a daughter-in-law from a foreign land. So this might have caused quite a stir, quite a buzz. What happened? And we get a play on words here, actually, in verse 20. It's a play on words. As we mentioned, uh, Naomi means pleasant or sweet. But she, she suggests that her friends give her a new nickname. Call me Mara. And Mara means bitter. So she says, don't call me sweet, call me bitter. A little play on words there in names. And she gives the reason. For the Almighty, uh, El Shaddai, the all-powerful, sovereign God, has dealt very bitterly with me. I left Bethlehem with a full family, and I've come back without them. I left full, I return empty. So can you sympathize with Naomi? She's faced so much misery. The famine in Bethlehem to begin with, the death of her husband, no grandchildren to carry on the family name, the death of both of her sons. She might be, at this point, just completely emotionally drained. Uh, When a believer faces that level of suffering, we have a couple choices to make. Either I can continue to trust and love God, knowing that he will do whatever is right, even when I don't understand it, or you can become resentful and bitter. And we saw that bitter resentment with Job's wife. When she was exposed to and facing an amazing amount of grief, she urged her husband to just curse God and die. But what's happening here with Naomi is a little harder to figure out. Earlier, if you remember, she said that the hand of the Lord has gone out against her. And now she says that the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with her. She said that the Lord brought her back empty, that the Lord has testified against her, and that the Almighty has brought calamity upon her. She doesn't seem to be confused about what's happening here. This is her perspective on reality. She seems to see a direct correlation between her behavior and God's providence. That's clear in the statement that God has testified against her, one of the things that she says here in this verse. Almost as if God has brought her up on charges of leaving the promised land and has testified now against her and has declared her guilty and has sentenced her to a life of grief. So here's a question that I wrestled with a lot in thinking through this passage. Is Naomi just telling it like it is? Or is she bitter towards God? Is she describing the bitterness of her circumstances? Is that what she means by bitterness? Or is she giving words to the bitterness that is in her own heart? It seems that it's a mixture of both. Again, not always so clear cut. There must be some level of resentment or bitterness that has settled in because she hasn't exactly returned empty. Ruth is probably standing right next to her when she says this. She might be forgiven by being a little hurt by Naomi. Like, what am I, chopped liver? (laughs) She just dedicated her life to Naomi, remember? But Naomi doesn't seem to see any value in her. She can't see it. It's possible that the emotional toll of grief and a bitterness towards God and the hand 
of the Almighty has kept Naomi from seeing the benefit, the blessing that is right beside her. But it's not so simple. Because we remember that we read in chapter 1, Naomi's own words to those daughters-in-law. In verse 8, on the way back to Bethlehem, Naomi knew that the Lord deals kindly. In fact, that's what she tried to bless them with. May the Lord bless you. May he act kindly towards you. And so from Naomi's own words, it's clear that she still believes that God exists. In the face of this affliction and suffering, she believes that God exists. She believes that God is sovereign over all things. That's evident. And she also believes that God has afflicted her. And she still believes that the Lord can deal kindly. All of these things are evident here in this first chapter, her own words. But maybe he's only kind towards other people. Maybe he's no longer kind towards me. In suggesting a new nickname for herself, sweet Naomi is doing more than simply giving us a cute play on words. She's giving words to how she feels. She's giving words to how she sees herself. She views her identity as one who is bitter, uh, discontent, perhaps even angry. Her personhood would now be defined by her bitter circumstances. Call me this. This is who I am. This is how she sees herself. And when you see yourself as a victim, you may begin to lose sight of God's kindness towards you. Sure, Naomi's miseries have been many, and we do not at all want to undermine that. But her blessings aren't to be underestimated either. The famine has ended. She's allowed to go back home. And she has a dedicated companion and friend in Ruth who shares now her same faith in the Lord. Bitterness has a tendency to exaggerate our suffering. Instead of counting her blessings and naming them one by one, she's accumulating a list of grievances and sort of chewing on it. It's important to note once again that the narrator does not explicitly tie her family's actions to her suffering. The narrator, the omniscient narrator, doesn't do that for us, but it does seem to be Naomi's perspective. There are examples of suffering we need to recognize in Scripture that happen not because of the choices that we make. This is true in Scripture. This is true in our own lives. There are examples of suffering that enters our lives not because of the choices that we make. And so we are mistaken if in every circumstance we make direct correlations between bitter circumstances in our lives and sin. In Jesus' ministry, he was passing through a town and his disciples, and he saw a man who was blind from his birth. And the disciples asked him the same sort of questions I would imagine that you and I would ask Jesus if we're walking along and see this man who was born blind from birth. The disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Was it this guy or his parents? That he was born blind. That is a question that we would often run to. What is the cause of this man's suffering? Someone has to be to blame. He must have done something. But this is confusing because if he was born blind, what could he have done before he was born? So uh, maybe his parents did something. 
Maybe his parents did something wrong, and that's why he was born with this affliction. Ah. Jesus responds by blowing up the categories. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And Christ heals his sight. This man born blind from birth, his affliction was an opportunity for God to manifest his compassion and his mercy and his sovereignty and his goodness. And so when we interpret the relationship of sin and suffering like that, we lose our ability to see clearly. We focus on our own suffering, the suffering others, and we don't focus on God. All we can see is the wrong and we become numb to the abundance of God's mercies that surround us. Naomi's situation was nuanced, to be sure. She knew who God was, she knew how he acted, but her perspective became skewed and her bitterness changed her view of herself and it kept her from rightly seeing God's goodness and his blessings. Bitterness can prevent us from seeing the good that God is working through our circumstances. And in this moment of the story, Naomi has no idea what's coming next. So let's not rush to judge Naomi. Rather, let us try to enter into her story. Let's try to understand it. Let's try to process this with her. And in so doing over the next few weeks, maybe we can process our own griefs, our own sorrows, in a way that brings healing and honor to the Lord. And perhaps even corrects our own vision so that we might begin to see a fraction of the 10,000 reasons that our hearts can find to bless the Lord. In verse 22, we get another glimmer of hope. This final verse of chapter 1 it foreshadows the joy of what's to come. Verse 22, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So they're harvesting bread in Bethlehem. And Act 2, which Lord willing we can look at next Sunday, will show us what that harvest of barley will bring. Spoiler alert, it's more than just barley. We're left, though, to wonder whether God has our best interests at heart sometimes in life. Like Naomi at the end of chapter 1. And when that happens, we just need to turn back to the gospel. Do we question whether God loves us? He showed us his love in sending us his son. The only truly innocent man intentionally sought out suffering, not because he deserved it, there was no confusion about that, but because we deserved it. He took on the ultimate suffering in our place. And on the cross, the almighty El Shaddai's God's hand went out in judgment against Christ in bitterness so that we wouldn't need to taste the bitterness of that judgment, but only the sweetness of his grace. So consider Jesus' covenant commitment to his God and his people. 
you have confusion about God's love, return to the gospel. Remember that Christ has clung to his people. Christ will never turn back. And not even death itself would be able to keep him from fulfilling his commitment to his people. If you don't know this Jesus, talk to me after the service in the lobby. Be happy to talk to you. Like Ruth, you were invited into the covenant community of those who believe and trust in the true and living God, no matter your background, ethnicity, history, whatever. And if you're wondering whether you're living the life you chose or you're living the life that chose you, here is one area in which you can make a very meaningful decision about the trajectory of your life. Repent and believe. Put your faith in Christ and find shelter and salvation under his wings. Brothers and sisters, if you are facing clouds of frowning providence, please don't let the bitterness of the moment cloud your sight or to cloud your judgment, your perspective of yourself or of God or his character. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior. Let's pray.